Welcome to the Humans of Learning Sciences. I'm your host, Dr. Monlin Monica Ko. The Learning Sciences is an interdisciplinary field that studies and supports learning in classrooms, after-school clubs, museums, and the outdoors. And while the learning scientists are united in their central commitment to trying to understand learning, there is a great diversity in how we do that work, and even in how we define learning. This podcast tries to take stock of and amplify these diverse perspectives. Our conversations will go beyond what you see on a website profile, CV, or scholarly publications. We want to dig deeper and understand the person who is behind the work. We'll ask questions like, what experiences formed your view of learning? How do you conceive of the learning sciences? And where do you think the field needs to go next? As your host, I'll be learning right along with you through these conversations and hope that they inspire even more dialogue about what it means to study and support learning. Join me on the Humans of Learning Sciences podcast. My guest today is Dr. Brianne Litz. Brianne is an assistant professor in instructional technology and learning sciences and the director of the Learn Explore Design Lab at Utah State University. Brianne's work explores the ways in which technology can help young people construct their identities through place and story in cross-cultural contexts. She looks at the work of making, designing, and producing, and how that process can promote collaborations across disciplines, communities, and cultures. We start our conversation talking about how her experiences in Northern Ireland helped her understand how design and making can serve as a literal bridge across political divides, bringing people together that hold diverse perspectives. Brianne conducts her work with Indigenous communities and consistently positions herself as a learner, team member, and partner alongside tribal leaders and youth. She uses a community-driven design approach to problematizing existing technologies and works in collaboration with tribal communities to build new technologies that help Indigenous youth capture and tell their histories and stories. What really stood out to me during our conversation is the way in which Brianne upholds the idea of partnership. It's inherent in what she does and how she does it. You can see it trickle all the way up and down her approach, from how her IRB is written, to the cultural competency training that she requires for those who join her lab, to deciding who gets a say in what questions they ask and who they do the work with. We also wrestle with this notion of what it means to make an impact on the world through our work. What does it mean for us to enact change on the world? How do we do that in partnership with communities without always taking away but rather pouring into the people we work with. I hope this conversation provides you with some fodder for discussion about the ways in which learning scientists can create real change in the world, in what, how, and why we do what we do as we study and support learning. Brianne, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Tell us a bit more about how your undergraduate experience in designing makerspaces in Ireland helped shape your work. It's a good question. Um, and I think unpacking that takes quite a bit of far backness um, for me, anyways. I think uh, so. I guess probably the best place to start is when I was just kind of applying to go to graduate school in the first place. Um, I, I studied psychology in undergraduate at the University of Washington, Seattle. I actually did a program called Running Start. And so most of my time was actually at the local community college um, where I where I grew up. 
which was around Tacoma, Washington. And um, in that process of applying, um, so I'm the first person in my family to go to college. And in that process for applying, my trio advisor, who I don't think was technically supposed to still be my trio advisor anymore, but like was still helping me out with my applications because I just didn't go to that school anymore. Um, and, and in the process of kind of looking for different programs and things, um, I knew for sure 110% I did not want to go clinical. And so it was basically presented as me from like professors at UW of like, you know, you could go clinical or you could go kind of like research and like in ed psych kind of route. And so I was looking at educational psychology programs and like other sort of child development psychology programs that were looking at um, cognitive youth and, or cognitive development in youth or um, things like that. And uh, just like per chance, the um, learning sciences program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison is in the ed psych program. So then I like discovered the learning sciences and I was like, oh, that sounds like what I would like to do. Um, and the reason is because while I was at the University of Washington, I did have the opportunity to study abroad um, in a program. And like, for me, I never really thought I was going to like be able to leave the country outside of driving up to Canada. Like it just wasn't a thing that my family did. Um, and somehow the way that it was set up, it basically cost the same amount for me to like go on this study abroad trip with tuition and everything. Like, I don't know how they got it to work out that way. That for sure is not a thing anymore. Um, plus a plane ticket. So I'm find myself in Northern Ireland and it's like a pretty intense, uh, it's a pretty intense place to be. We had a whole seminar for the whole trimester or quarter before we left preparing us to, for what we are walking into. And so if you're not familiar with like the, I guess, cultural or social context, historical context, really, um, they, they like live very segregated. So they have literally like 20 to a hundred feet walls. Like they're like metal fences on top of cement fences on top of, right. Like dividing communities. Um, and we were there, uh, as part of a sociology program to like learn, and connect with people. And um, I had the opportunity to volunteer at the Belfast Computer Clubhouse, which was like this after school organization funded by Intel. And it, it's like the one uh, city in the world where there was two computer clubhouses in the same city. Um, and they were literally a five minute walk away from each other. I guess if you're not familiar with the computer clubhouse, it's basically like probably like what the modern day makerspace is, I would guess. So like it, there's a lot of the um, design features I think that you see in makerspaces are from computer clubhouse, like having a big central table that people can kind of congregate around, having lots of different kinds of technology. It was like more media focused, I think. So there's a lot of, there's like a podcast room and like media development room. They did like things on Photoshop and, and things like that. And so we would bring the kids together um, and I just remember like one specific time we were taking the kids over across to the other side. And like one of the kids that was sitting next to me in the van was like, yeah, I really don't want to see them. I don't want to hang out with them. Like, I hate them. And I was like, do you know them? And he was like, no, 
I was like, how do you know this then? And he, um, he just is like, that's just, that's just, I just know. Right. And so then I'm like, I don't really know how this is going to go. Like this kid just like hates these people. And I'm watching these kids who had literally just proclaimed like hate for these other kids, like, you know, minutes before just like playing together on the computer, making music together. Um, and I think that's, that's for me, like why I am where I am today is like, I always go back to that moment of seeing the power of like making things and creating things together can bring people together across like literal divides. Um, and that's something that like, I still care very deeply about. Tell me more about how this experience connects with your graduate school career at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I ended up applying to work with Erica Halverson. She like accepted me into the program. There was a, a, a professor in the department, uh, Dr. Bob Enright, who does peace education work in Northern Ireland. And so I met with him and got to know him. And he gave me this opportunity to, to work with him on that for a couple of years. And that, um, like that experience was, I think being able to go back, it was more in the classrooms. Um, so we were working with K-12 teachers and then we were also working with families. So parents kind of teaching their kids this curriculum at home. Um, and, and I, the reason I bring that up is because even like the, even while I was doing that work, which was years later, like there's still going bomb, like there's still bombs going off, you know? And, um, like the last time that I was there, I would always like fly out of Dublin and from Belfast to Dublin, it's like a three hour bus ride. And like, by the time I got to Dublin, like the bus stop that I had just been at, like was bombed. And my grandma was like, you're not going back. <laughs> that sounds like a traumatic, life-changing experience. It, that was like pretty scary. Like that was one of the closer calls that I had had. Did that experience in Northern Ireland change your thinking about learning? I was in a psych program, so I was very cognitive. I understand like it was all about like the brain processing, that kind of thing. But the program that I studied abroad in was like sociology, which is right. Like I, and so I think I've like, it just gave me a different perspective because we were there not looking in people's heads. We were there looking at, at how people lived in the world. I'd say for like the work that I've, that I've had the opportunity to do around like making and maker spaces has always really been driven by that experience I had with that kid in Northern Ireland and just watching them come together around making and building. And I, I think it's, and just seeing how that process brings people together who like say that they hate each other. Um, and even, and, and, and just like being able to like connect people in that way. And I think the more time that I've spent with it, the more I've learned that like the, one of the big benefits of design, whether we call it making or tinkering or, or whatever, I think some those, the nuance matters in certain contexts. Um, but is that you, it, you allow everybody to bring something to the table. And that's like, so important. Um, if you're going to think about things like access and equity in learning environments, I think I like saw this glimpse of like how building with technology could like 
actually change kids' lives for the better in Northern Ireland, even just working um, on the on the grant, uh, the makerspace grant with um, Erica Halverson and Kim Sheridan and a bunch of like other scholars and Lisa Brahms from the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh. In the context we were working in, it brought to light that there are so many kids who don't identify with like the technologies and the tools that we're using. And then it's just a lot of like, well, why is that? And I think that question of like asking what, like what is happening here and why is this happening? Like noticing and wondering is like how, how I've gotten to where I am today. Um, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about your um, 2021 piece called Computing for All, Examining Critical Biases and Computational Tools for Learning. This was something that was published in the British Journal of Educational Technology. That piece seems to directly connect with what you said earlier about the gap between the structure of the technological tool and whether or not it affords youth to tell the kind of stories that they want to tell. So could you tell us a little bit about the backdrop for that piece? I've like I've always been super interested in the connection between place and narrative and identity, like telling stories in place and the way in which they reinforce and substantiate or um, reify particular identities. I got super curious about mobile technologies as um, like GPS technologies become more robust and like now we have QR codes, we have all these, we have all these like different technologies, Bluetooth, everything like that, right? That allow you to experience stories in places where they occurred. In that particular piece, we um, were using this platform that I had had the privilege of kind of helping design and a variety of like peripheral capacities, like for like a decade. Um, and I was very familiar with it. I'd implemented it with lots of different kids, right? Like it's a novice programming platform where kids can build their own, um, their own stories and then go out into the actual world or games and go out into the actual world and play them. We were working with, uh, a community, uh, tribal nation, um, in the Southwestern United States. Uh, they had asked for our help with one of their summer programming opportunities to kind of provide digital storytelling programming like an like a like a workshop kind of thing as part of their summer camp and so the context of that paper is that summer camp um and what was very very humbling for me is going around um we had spent again, like a decade, fine-tuning the design process. We had like storyboarding cards. We had thought about this learning process like forever, like very, very, very deeply. So what did you observe when youth were interacting with the thing that you had a hand in designing? I remember going up to this one group. I'm like, oh, okay. So like, what are you all thinking about? And they shared this like incredibly like nuanced like place-based experience that they wanted to like story they wanted to share that it's like a retelling of a tour they went on um from one of the tribal knowledge holders uh who was a sculpture artist and he kind of gave them this tour of all of his art and like the meaning behind it which was all very culturally significant and sharing a lot of their their own cultural stories and they had um like their idea was like brilliant implementing their idea in 
the the actual platform we were using required a level of expertise that um, they just didn't have. And so, and that's when I realized, like, when you're talking about access, like, or on-ramping people, we could get people to make uh, some sort of place-based game or story pretty quickly on that platform. The problem was it was like really only allowing people to tell certain kinds of narrative stories and stories obviously vary widely in structure in how they're told in how they're experienced and who the audience is all of that varies culturally and so for me I I realized like oh like this technology this group of kids is actually like feeling like they don't identify with this technology because they can't tell the story they want to tell in it but that's not their fault. That's the technology's fault. That was, and in some ways that was my fault. Cause like, I didn't see that either. Right. And so I think that like that experience is why I've like really gotten into the underlying knowledge systems that drive our technologies, uh, which is some of the work that I, I'm still working on today one of the insights that you made that I'm always going to give you credit for because it was, it it like gave me language. I was like, oh yeah, that is kind of what I'm doing (laughs) is, uh, is the wide walls piece of that, right. That like the, the thing that I care about is the walls being wide. Cause we had a tool where it did have a low floor and a high ceiling. Like you could go from sort of like just filling in text boxes to doing JavaScript very quickly if you wanted to. And we saw lots of kids do that in other workshops, but the walls were not very wide on that tool in, in terms of the low floor. Like you have to have a low floor with a very well, it's like, it's a ramp. It's pretty long, right? Like you need, otherwise you're excluding particular kinds of people and particular kinds of knowledge and ways of being, which is exactly what like we were doing. Dr. Melissa T. Hughes in psychology at USU and um, Dr. Uh, Rogelio Cardona Rivera, who's in computer science at um, the University of Utah. And I just got a grant to do this exact work on building a technology that is from like the, like from the computational model level is actually built from an indigenous knowledge system. So we're working with the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation together to do that work, right? And I think that um, it just goes back to what I was saying in Northern Ireland about design, like design allows everybody to bring something to the table. And like, also I just, you, you need all the people at the table to do good design. Um, and I think that part of the reason we ended up with the tool we ended up with, and we end up, we continue to end up with racist technologies is because like the people at the table all look the same still, right? And so I, I think there is, in that NSF grant, we are trying to bring people who have the expertise to to build the thing that the tribe wants to build, right? Um, and so it's less about us coming in and taking from them like this is a thing that they want to preserve their own culture and history you talking about sort of the affordances and the constraints of design um makes me think about um 
I think it was Seymour Papert first, but Mike Resnick quoted him, but you know, the idea of designs being low floor and high ceiling, right? And you have the low floor was referring to the fact that novices should have a pretty easy way into using the technology, but there's a lot of, um, the high ceiling is the, where they could go once, once they put their foot in the door. Um, and it sounds like, you know, with maybe one of the issues maybe with technology is that maybe there's this constant tension of like, how much do you foreground? How much do you let someone see into the system? Cause that's complicated, right? Um, and so you want to background it and sometimes you black box it so that you can simplify the kinds of actions that you can take. But it sounds like some of your work and the work that you do with indigenous communities is to try to kind of peel back those layers and say, we got to be inspecting and maybe co-designing the actual skeleton and the bones and the logic, right? Because if we don't, it becomes it's no longer being used as a tool to tell the story that we want people to tell. And instead, there's some dissonance there between the various ways in which you tell a story and the purpose and function of the tool. So Mike Regsnick once said, when discussing technologies to support learning and education, my mentor Seymour Papert often emphasized the importance of quote, low floors and high ceilings. For a technology to be effective, he said, it should provide easy ways for novices to get started, low floors, but also ways for them to work on increasingly sophisticated projects over time, which is the high ceilings. For a more complete picture, we need to add an extra dimension, wide walls. It's not enough to provide a single path from low floor to high ceiling. We need to provide wide walls so that students or kids can explore multiple pathways from floor to ceiling. Tell us a little bit about how your work speaks to this idea, particularly of wide walls and um, in relation to equitable designs. Yeah, I really appreciate this metaphor a lot. Um, the low floor is like, how easy is it to on-ramp someone? How easy is it for someone to feel like they can use the technology, right? So um, you want really low floors. And, and my thing with all technology and all design is like, if, if you pick up something and you don't immediately know what to do with it, probably it wasn't designed well. For example, like Don Norman talks about like doors a lot in the design of doors, right? Like you should be able to walk through a door and not know that you walk through a door. Like if you're pushing or pulling the door the wrong way, it's a poorly designed door. You're not stupid. And I think people walk away from those interactions thinking like, oh, that was really stupid. I just pushed the pull door. And I think the problem is when we're talking about like learning technologies, the same thing can happen if there's not a low floor, right? And that's kind of what was happening with this group of kids who really wanted to tell this story. And it was like a brilliant story to tell. Like they just, they, like they, they, they were trying to push a pull door and we didn't design it clearly to like let them do the thing they wanted to do. And so I think that is like a like a low floor, the high ceiling, um, in this particular tool, like the example that I would use for it is that like kids can very quickly start putting like JavaScript or HTML directly into these like text boxes and kind of like quote unquote hacking the tool to do whatever they wanted, which is what these, these, this group would have had to do in order to, um, execute the idea that they had. And like, so if you think about, 
in order for them to do the thing they wanted to do, they had to have a certain level of expertise in programming and computer science, but this is supposed to be a workshop that is a low floor workshop, right? And I think that's where the wide walls come in, where like the floor needs to be low and wide so that lots of people can like get to the point where they're developing like much more sophisticated ideas because there just like wasn't an on-ramp for them at all to that tool. Um, and like, I mean, ultimately, like I helped them start, like I filled in the expertise gap and they made something they were really proud of, but like that, that shouldn't have had to happen. Like, and right. That that's a design fail on, on our part as people who design that tool. That's not an expert. I mean, yeah, just like, I think the push and pull door example is always like a very relatable example. And so in terms of trying to honor stories and all of their variability and particularly ones that reflect the epistemologies of the indigenous knowledge system. It sounds like what you're saying is, is that the architecture and the logic of that tool was not allowing for those kind of stories to be told. And you're saying, no, we got to actually go into that technology and figure out what are the assumptions that are being made about what a story, what counts as a story, right? Um, and so, I don't know, it makes me think about in my work, I think about co-design as an opportunity for learning. And I know that you do a lot of that work with um, indigenous communities, tribal leaders. And I'm curious about what you've been learning through the co-design process about technology design or just the learning environment itself that you need to build to enable the design of the technology. I'll just start at the beginning. Uh, I have been working with the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation for about four or so years now. Um, and we started working together. Um, I mean, I don't even know if I would call it working together. We were just kind of hanging out, honestly. like. The chairman at the time and I were just like grabbing coffee and different things. He and I connected at a um, inclusive excellence conference that Utah State University was having that he spoke at. And um, in like the Q&A session after, he actually mentioned uh, a project that I was like very briefly involved with that was happening at the University of Wisconsin-Madison when I was there around um, like we were attempting to share some of like the, the local tri tribal nations stories that were on us or excuse me uw madison's campus and he mentioned like wanting to do that potentially at utah state which are on his tribe's ancestral lands and um when we kind of talked about the opportunities for technology and engaging youth in the tribe around their culture through technology was something they really, really wanted to do. And it just happens to be a thing that I study and I'm like kind of okay at and can be hopefully helpful with, right? And so um, we like have been working together since then on, on that. And as the project evolved, which is sort of like fast forwarding a lot and I can unpack that um, later, but like we have tried different technologies um, with the youth and the tribe and the families in the tribe. Um, and we're actually at a place now where we are designing a new 
technology basically from scratch, like from the computational model level that represents their indigenous knowledge, um, that they will be able to then share their own stories on um, for their tribe's preservation, for their family, preser historical preservation, and for sharing, because they do go to classrooms, like hundreds of classrooms a year. And so for also sharing in classroom spaces, what's appropriate at each of those levels, right? Um, and so that's kind of where we're at right now in thinking about how to basically build a technology from scratch um, that represents indigenous knowledge systems rather than Western knowledge systems. A big part of our work is funded by uh, an NSF career grant that I got. And I hesitate to even say I got it because we needed money to do this family programming that we wanted to do. And that was like the next thing that was available. And it allowed us the space to ask for all the things we needed that some of the other programs didn't. And it was five years, which is not common. And we needed time. And a big part of what we wanted to do with that grant is learn, like figure out how to do community-driven design research um, building off of Megan Bang's like community-based design research. And so this is really unpacking research and restructuring it in a way that would truly honor tribal sovereignty. Um, and I share that because in this design context, it's not like, even though I have a particular expertise in the design of technology, my co-PI Rogelio Cardona Rivera in computer science at the, at the University of Utah has expertise in computational modeling. I can't even pretend to understand half the time. And Melissa T. in psychology at Utah State University has um, expertise in, she, she's also a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. And so she, she's done a ton of work around storytelling and healing and trauma with tribal nations, which is part of like a big piece of like, and I didn't know, like, I don't know much about that either, right? Like that's not my area of expertise. And then we have sort of the tribal members who are leading us and we're basically just kind of trying to bring our expertise in a way that's helping design this thing so that they can preserve and share the histories and their stories in the way that they want to. It seems to me that the way that you're, that you work with your colleagues and, you know, with tribal leaders and nations really pushes it back against how research is commonly done, right? We want to, we want, we want to, and we think we need to lead projects as PI. Uh, we need to say that things are in our portfolio. We run a lab. Um, you've been really careful to use the word we and talk about your positioning as following and supporting the work that other people want to do. And that's a dance that we don't really learn that, I don't think, in graduate school. <laughs> um, you know, um, it takes a level of humility and introspection and um, um, an awareness of your positioning at all times, right? Um, and so I wonder about how you, not that you've arrived, but that how do you kind of continue to think about your position in those spaces, because it could be very easily, I can imagine, and very damaging to those relationships. If you try to foreground that, the expertise that you bring, the things, you know, your contributions, but yet I think oftentimes we're trained in academia to 
kind of take that stance. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what it means to navigate that. Um, that's a really good question to think about. For me, a lot of the answer to that question like mirrors the way in which we were talking about the design of technology, right? So they're, um, the underlying knowledge systems matter. They're, they determine value. They determine experience, right? The same is true in research and academia, right? Like the underlying knowledge systems that are being privileged in those spaces, like that matters. And they're telling you, you need to value certain things and you need to um, be a certain way. And um, like that, I, I personally feel that struggle as a first-generation college student. Like I love my family so much. Like my grandma could probably do a reasonably good job of explaining what I do. Um, but like, it's so disconnected from the world that I grew up in, the world that I live in, like when I go home, right? If this is not all of who I am and like those pieces of me through graduate school, and it's not like any one person's fault, were not like pieces that were necessarily like welcome in that space. And I think um, as I've grown and started to do this work and like really goes back to that value of design good design requires diverse perspectives and like like allows everybody to contribute something that is actually necessary to like make the design good right so when you're making things together you're able to bring people together in a way where they feel like they're making a contribution that actually matters because they are like you literally can't make the thing in the way without them and so when you think about research i think in that way um you had to start at the beginning so we started at the beginning, like the very beginning, like IRB beginning of like once like of the work of like, well, the system says that you're a participant and I'm a researcher. Well, that's not how we work, right? Like we have four leaders on our team, myself and three tribal elders. We work together. We do not make decisions without each other. We do not. And I, and I realized the irony of that on an NSF career grant that is awarded to a single PI is rich, but I actually think that it's like maybe a marker that NSF is starting to value that kind of collaboration. Cause I use we, and they wrote part of the grant that I submitted for my career grant, right? And I do use we in my career grant. Um, I didn't own the work for myself it was something that we did together. Like, that's what we are doing. We're doing this together. Um, we're trying to figure out how to do this together, trying to figure out how to do research that helps communities of people that have historically been like grotesquely harmed by this research. And um, that requires things like honoring their sovereignty and self-determination. So we put together an MOU, outlines, I, I do not decide who is a research participant, who is a researcher. I don't, I don't make those decisions. People just tell me and I like, and they can change like on a given day. And I kind of like track them the best I can for our IRB, but it is like super messy and fluid. Um, and we have developed sort of like a 
video based kind of alternative to what like the human subjects training would be at an institution because we as a team felt that like while we want anyone who wants to be be a researcher part of being a researcher is understanding how to do that ethically and that was something we cared about so we created this video based training that like someone could probably complete in an hour maybe an hour and a half if they watch them all through that kind of outlines some of the core ethical considerations that you need to do if you're going to like do kind of research and like what that looks like um particularly with indigenous communities so that tribal members can kind of go through that pathway however they choose and i think that that of like who gets to do this work keeping that open is one of the most important parts if you're really coming into like collaborative research community driven research the who is not something i decide and i get like i like i gave that up and as a result we we get to do like it's our project right yeah that's really beautiful i wonder you know that level of fluidity i feel like what you're foregrounding is relationship building right you have there's trust there is um I mean, I think the fact that you're thinking about sort of tribal sovereignty and how to honor stories and histories um, of place and land through your work, um, it feels like it fundamentally probably pushes the university a little bit to think about its relationship to, to those communities. I mean, it's easy to see our work as a zero sum game, right? There is a limited amount of money and everybody wants it. it. It can be a rat race. How you put your, you know, your best step forward and how you can distinguish yourself. And that is, I mean, the way that you're talking about it, in fact, reflects um, the things that are privileged in an indigenous knowledge system. It's about relationships. It's not about single characters or people, but it's about relationships to land and place and um, histories and cultures. And um, it's just so lovely to hear someone who um, is not indigenous herself to fervently honor that and to see that all aspects of your research from the output to the methods to the, the IRB, the Institutional Review Board stuff, um, that you want to see that coherence and that thread um, come through. Um, so it's just very encouraging for me because I think that it's unfortunately rare and um, but I hope that it, like you said, is signaling a different way, a different model of university and community relationships and partnerships and a different way to conduct research itself. What aspects of how we do research and the products of our research do you hope to disrupt as you engage in this partnership work with indigenous communities? What are you hoping to see happen? I know that you're you talked earlier about sort of keeping things open-handed and you know you don't you're not this person who's driving um driving the bus here but when you think about academia and how work gets done and what is valued what are some things that you're hoping to kind of move the needle on when you think about your hopes for learning sciences research or just research in general Maybe we can start here with your journal article about culturally disruptive research. Right. Published in Information and Learning Science. Um, 
So the, the culturally disruptive research piece is actually really interesting because we wrote that with a couple of K-12 teachers that um, Melissa Tee and I have worked with for like four or five years. And um, they, again, kind of like came to us. They take this field trip down to the San Juan River every year, which is a natural border to the Navajo Nation. And uh, they actually like take iPads. So the reason why we initially met was because like I do things with iPads and they wanted to know what kinds of things they should do with iPads. And the conversation very quickly turned to this other opportunity because I asked, I was like, well, do the kids know that like you're, you're on the Navajo Nation? And they were like, well, probably we could do better with that. Um, and so that set literally the stage for now four or five years of, of work together. And part of that work is the work that we're doing on ourselves. And so I think like the culturally disruptive piece, and I think it's so cool because that particular project is such a great example. I mean, the two teachers that we work with the most closely are white and they have engaged in the, um, like this, this culturally disruptive research process. So like thinking about their own cultural identity, how is what they're teaching? Like, where are their bounds in what they're teaching? When is it okay for them to share particular aspects of indigenous knowledge? When is it, when is it necessary to bring someone else in? When is it right? And so I think as we're disrupting our own culture, um, we are actually opening the possibility for like more cultures to be invited into that space, right? Because we're recognizing ourselves, uh, the limitations of our own knowledge, which is what we've seen in these teachers is like, as they've developed their own cultural humility or competence or, or whatever you prefer to call it, um, they have gotten to a place where they are more aware of their own limitations, but they're also more competent in their own cultural identity. So they share more about themselves with their kids, right? And I think the culturally disruptive research take is trying to challenge scholars to bring, think about the like, be the who that they're bringing to their work um and I mean everybody so like every research project like all my students and research assistants have to do IRB like human subjects training they also have to do cultural competence training or you just don't work on a project um and that's not to say that that's like an answer but it is like it's the start of like, you're going to keep doing this work while we're doing this work. Cause that's part of the work is like developing your own cultural self, your own cultural identity. It, it just seems really unfair for us to go into spaces and ask people to be a super vulnerable with us in the name of objectivity. We are not vulnerable in return. I just, I, I, I think I am currently feeling that is unethical and it makes me feel like, I don't want to do that. So I think as we move forward in, in research and like, I am 
a hundred thousand percent not the only person in the learning sciences that does this work. There are so many people who do like really, really incredible research practice partnership work, community-based work, community-driven work, all of whom have like inspired me and I aspire to be like, right? Like, I just think that, I think which is encouraging, but there's still like a lot of like systemic issues pushing us toward, well, you need to write that journal article or you need to get a grant or you need to do this thing. And it's like, how do we value helping people? especially when I work at a public university, right? The taxpayers are paying my salary. I feel like I have some service to help them. And I just don't feel like a journal article that my grandma can't understand is helping that many people. I think like, I guess more directly to answer your question, I think like in the learning sciences specifically, given how methodologically focused we can be, I would love to see like more disruption around valuing different outputs of those methods, right? And I think we really do, I feel like make up a lot of methods and the more interdisciplinary work that I do, I realize how unique the learning sciences is in that. Um, and I really would like to see us value things more than just like writing journal articles and um, think about like what are other what are other outputs what are other impacts that we are making with our work. A lot of us who are in learning sciences who are trying to study and support learning, I think we all see the value in our work. But when do we turn the lens on ourselves and ask the question and document what have we been learning? Where were we naive? What biases did we bring? And we don't, we rarely talk about those stories and maybe people see them as unpublishable. Um, but I love that you're not separating the person from the output, which is what we um, often do, not just in the United States, but elsewhere, that we just think about ourselves as something, as someone who generates work and that that work is the thing that defines us. It's very dehumanizing though, right? Like, I think, like, I remember when I first figured out that like those, like that name that I put with the date in parentheses on a paper, like that's a human, like that's actually a person who lives in the world. Yeah. Well, let's, I don't know. Let's just brainstorm a little bit. What would you want to see as the things that get valued in her research and in the learning sciences? If it's not publications, like how can we honor the things that we think really matter? All of the ideas that come to mind for me are like very subjective, um, like sustained partnerships, like work. Like one of the things that's hard for me to understand often is like doing work on grant cycles um, as if when the grant ends, like my job ends, right? And I know that's true for some people who don't like work in a tenure track position, but like as someone who is in a tenure track position, I don't even know how to relate to that idea because my job doesn't go away. I'm still 50% research. That means 50% of my time, I'm already getting paid to do this work. So why would it end when the grant ends other than the fact that like now maybe they're not getting paid, which is more important to me than like, that I, cause like I'm getting paid to do this anyways. And so I think that like 
when you think about like sustained partnerships over time, and I think that attaching partnerships to grants can be kind of harmful to communities in a way we don't intend, um, depending on how you enter into that relationship, right? Like I'm always going to be working with the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation as long as they want me to be working with them. I do a lot of work with them outside the scope of any of the funded projects because like I care about them like this is where I live this is the community I live in like that matters to me and I think that um like there's been some work around like thinking around like different kinds of outputs so like video outputs right and and like how do those get valued but also like even at our institution in, in like my tenure case, my committee pushed hard to like highlight the, like the MOU that we have as like, that is like a marker of the work that we're doing. Like it's part of the work and it should matter. Like getting an IRB approved should matter. Like we should engage with the IRB as partners, helping us do ethical research and right. And like that, that should matter. Um, and I think a lot of these things we can think of as like obstacles to get to the actual work. And I just think like, it is the work, like that is the work. That's part of the work. What I've been asking everyone as the last part of our conversation is, and I think you may have answered a lot of this earlier, but what are your sort of hopes for the future of learning sciences, right? Um, you yourself have been on this journey and um, the focus of your work, there's thread lines, but there's also shifts in, you know, what you were interested in grad school until now, but for, in terms of your view of the field and your understanding of where you are in it, what do you hope to see more of, or maybe less of, as we are thinking about the path forward in our, in our field? I think in our field and in all research, I just would love to see more, like genuine relationships with communities. And there's a lot now, especially in our in our field, but I think we have the potential to do work with others in other disciplines, right? Who, to be more expansive in um, rethinking what research looks like across a lot of fields. Um, and even in areas where it might not be readily apparent, right? Like, I think it's easy to look at the learning sciences, which is done with people and say, of course, like it's relational and of course it's um, collaborative and it's very complex and messy and all of these things, but so is like studying snakes, right? Like there are, um, or plants, like there, there are cultural implications to all of these other fields and areas that, that we can think about. And I think there are opportunities to do community-driven work in all fields. And I think that, um, I, I mean, I think that some scholars in our field have started pushing the bounds in other fields, or we're already pushing the bounds in those fields. I don't really know where the bounds are for any of the fields, but, but right. I think that, um, if I were to think ahead 
to what the world of research looks like, it would be that you could go up to anybody on the street and they would be able to tell you like, yeah, yeah, this benefited me or yeah, yeah, I know that program. Like I do this thing or something like that, right? Like it's actually benefiting people in the world in a way they can understand um, and mean something to them. And I think the way that we do that is through relationship with people. I would like to see the people we work with in the community be the ones who tell us the quality of that partnership. Because I think there's a little bit of a conflict of interest if like the researchers telling you, right? I think that I would like to hear from those, like the, like the people, like the partners, the community members, um, what their experience is like, how it's benefiting them. That's what I feel. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of what you shared that, that will be, I think, really powerful, especially for young researchers. No, thanks for chatting. I, um, I appreciate the opportunity to like share and talk. Thank you. Thank you. I'd love to hear what you took away from this conversation and connections that you see to your own work. Send us an email at humanslspod at gmail.com and find us on Twitter at humanslspod. This podcast is co-produced by Andrew Kurzak and Monlin Monica Cope. Our work is made possible by the Learning Sciences Research Institute at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.